Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. I invite you to join me on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as a participant in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. If you are a classical educator or a parent who is passionate about educating your children well, and you have been intrigued by many books such as Norms and Nobility by David Hicks, Walking on Water by Madeleine Langle, Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis, Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius, or Tending the Heart of Virtue by Vegan Gorian, this is a great episode for you to stick with. Um, we have a guest. Dr. Danny Gableman, who is a scholar in England on George MacDonald. I met him through um, the George MacDonald Society. And I have a guest co-host today, Dr. Rena Loro, who's been on our show a few times. And um, so what I'd like to do is ask Dan Danny, Dr. Gableman, to tell us, to open us up with uh, telling us a little bit about his work and why George MacDonald is important for classical education. Welcome to the show, Danny. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be with you. Um, my work with George MacDonald um, was focused on his fairy tales in particular. And so I did a lot of work sort of looking at George MacDonald, trying to, trying to reappraise his work a little bit in the sense of not treating him as, as a serious, solemn Victorian um, preacher. Uh, not to say that there's some of those aspects don't come out in a lot of his works, but trying to see the kind of the what the kind of the puckish heart at, at the core of George MacDonald. He's he's very he's actually a very playful, light-hearted, um, joyous figure. And so a lot of what I was trying to do in my thesis, which has come out as a book now, is looking at what I call levity, um, which is, again, not not necessarily just sort of stupid, frivolous, nonsensical kind of stuff. Well, I do, he does have a lot of nonsense, but but he 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 unites it into this higher harmony, which again I I I, I like talking about as as levity, which is kind of moving beyond gravity, the solemn and the serious, because that is never a final sort of stage. It might be sort of part of the journey, but it's never um, the, the highest part of that. Um, so that's a little bit about my uh, research with that. I'm I'm involved with the George MacDonald Society as the academic representative, and we try to promote all things George MacDonald by running conferences and um, promoting his works online and through uh, events. And I'm hoping to start a podcast like this one at some point. So, so tell me why you think George MacDonald is important in the world of classical education. Yes. Yeah, so I, I think because uh, one of the things that MacDonald is absolutely focused on is, is, is education itself is every kind of every single work that George MacDonald writes is about growth is about development. He wouldn't necessarily, you know, talk about it, although he does, he has lo loads of teachers and um, educators as characters within his works. Um, in his fairy tales, I say, 
you know, every single fairy tale has at its core uh, the idea of development, growth in some in some sense. In the most fundamental sense, you could therefore say everything he's he 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 writes and everything he's thinking about is about education. Again, in that broadest possible sense uh, of the word, and he writes he he writes very very beautifully about this um, in his in in all of his stories. But he also, I think, is one of the best thinkers on this subject, and in particular, the way that he draws out the importance of the imagination in education and the the fundamental, um, profound role that the imagination has in creating learners, but also in in um, what uh, connecting all those those all parts of the, of of education together not sort of leaving them as bits that are that are um isolated um but unifying that for for for, Mac, for mcdonald the imagination is the faculty that unites into something higher and bigger and greater um so that without that he would say you 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 don't really have education you might have you might have knowledge you might have intellect you might have other things but you wouldn't have this sort of uh, harmonious interrelationship between uh, all the different parts. Mm-hmm. I agree. And to prepare for this interview, we all decided to read or reread from all of us, I guess, the imagination, its function, its function and its culture, which is the first chapter in the longer work, The Dish of Orts by George MacDonald. And he opens, I think, opens up the essay talking, I mean, at least I circled in my first paragraph that he seemed to be describing for us modern education. <laughs> like when he was talking about the problems, like if we wanted to kill imagination, here's what we would do, right? And I read that and I was like, well, that kind of sounds like what our, what we're doing, right? So, so um, Rena, why don't you uh, get us going into this essay and perhaps you have a few questions also for for Danny before we even get going into the essay. So I'll let you yeah. share some of that, your thoughts there. Absolutely, absolutely. I wanted before we jump into uh, the, the essay proper, I, I wanted to kind of get a few more thoughts from you about um, levity, um, and especially as it's expressed as this kind of tension between uh, a whimsy and uh and frivolity or the resisting of frivolity the reason why i ask this is that in in classical schools um often can be very dour places um it's a very serious work uh that uh that they are about there's a restoration there's a recovery there is the cultivating of virtues um, classrooms and hallways are often, um, especially in the in the lower grades, they're seen as successful if they're orderly and they're silent. Um, and I imagine that some people listen to this when they hear levity um, or they think about whimsy. Um, immediately, the idea of uh, transgressiveness comes to mind. I mean, indeed, Puck, right? Puck, Puck is in some ways a transgressive uh, figure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm wondering, um, obviously, McDonald doesn't fall into this. Um, 
And so in your readings of McDonald and in your own scholarship, how do we hold the line uh, between um, whimsy and frivolity? Um, maybe frivolity, the frivolous is not necessarily a negative in this sense, but more importantly, how can we embrace whimsy um, and resist the transgressive um, in the in a, the negative sense? And also, if, if transgressive is something that you think McDonald embraces, how does he kind of bring that into the orderliness and the harmony? Yes, excellent question. Very difficult <laughs> to uh, give you a full, um, adequate answer to. Um, I, I think one thing to say is McDonald is a transgressive figure in 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 certain ways and in, and and in certain respects. Um, he's not as transgressive as you know, like an Oscar Wilde or or, or something like that. Who who you know? Uh, I don't want to caricature because uh, I think there's there's a lot there's a lot of of interesting depths there as well. Um, but for the sake of, of this, you can sort of take that as, as maybe a, um, a type of whimsy, which sometimes can seem to be merely um, frivolous, merely for laughs or merely for jokes or something, something along those lines, which is probably what the classroom teacher is, is most I'm concerned about in in uh, you know uh, as I was teaching this afternoon, uh, I was very much trying to quash the uh, the what uh, the levity that was not properly directed, um, and I, I suppose um, what I, I, I think what McDonald would say, and we'll get into this. I think with with the essay, and, and he he I think he talks very directly to this. Um, what he says is what we what we need is more imagination and in a sense we need more whimsy of a sort but again he he always wants to he always wants to he he talks about one not in this essay but in um uh elsewhere he talks about this idea of of a spiral of an upward spiral and and the idea of the spiral is is precisely that um we start as a child and when we're when we're a child we have this this sort of natural uh, bubbling up uh, enthusiasm and joy and all those sorts of things, but it also is chaotic. It also, you know, it also is what turns into tantrums and it turns into the the negative side of things. And so you then progress up, and maybe it seems like you're progressing away from all of that, and you're progressing away from your, and you're just learning to control, and you're learning to suppress um, all emotions that kind of thing. And what he says is. Um, you know that's a stage in the development, but then actually you return at a higher level to this, in a sense, kind of a similar stage that you were at before. You're kind of trying to progress to the place where you have, you still have the enthusiasm. You don't, you know, you, you don't want to lose the enthusiasm. You don't want to lose the whimsy. Um, you want to be, you want it to be cultivated. You want it to be directed and educated, and that's the whole point, right? That's the whole point of education itself is to take that that natural thing which is one of the best things in all of us is presumably is our passions and our emotions which which bubble out in all sorts of ways some some in these amazing sort of divine kind of ways and in and sometimes in in you know demonic kind of ways and obviously you want to uh, to to select and to cultivate the the proper ones so i think what he would say is his he would one of the big things for McDonald is is fearlessness, I would say, and and so 
and so what he thinks of what what he would probably say to that educator who was who was who was worried about that um breaking out is is you know not not that you should just let chaos reign or or, or anything like that but actually what you need is you you need to cultivate it into a higher passion for something even better than whatever that thing is not denigrate um that that emotion or that uh, or, or where or that location that that from which that whimsy is is originating um he says if you if you if you kill the the source of of passion well you've you've you, they're never going to be educated anyway they're, they're they're you've kind of killed the 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 thing that's that's driving them forward um to begin with so that would be a start at an answer but it would take a lot longer to fully unpack no, that's fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. And and um, and there's a lot of things there that obviously are are are, are calling us into this essay. Be before we uh, jump into the essay, I just want to check something with you so that we can kind of put this out there for the for the listeners as well. Uh, and I, I hear you using the language of rightly ordering, being associated with uh, um, education and rightly ordering kind of desires and passions. And um, uh, in the, the 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 church fathers and the patristic theology, and this is coming, you know, coming out of uh, Aristotle, obviously, um, that the soul itself is 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 divided into to three pieces, as tripartite, right? And so there are this kind of hunky. Uh, um, desires and passions, kind of like the the big ball on the uh, on the snowman, um, and then there's the thumos or the thematic. There's the will, right, uh, uh, which is associated with the mind. So that's kind of like the the middle portion of this snowman. And then, of course, there's the noose, uh, or uh, um, uh, which uh, um, the the medieval scholars, uh, so uh, the scholastics, would later call kind of the active intellect, right. It's it's the thing that is shaping and uh, and Coleridge, uh, uh, um, he, he's he calls this uh, the the primary imagination. Uh, does McDonald see this? Is this something accurate insofar as when we talk about imagination and facts and reality? Before we even do that in this in this essay. Does Coleridge see that, or is there something else afoot in his kind of conception of the human soul and its relationship to the passions? You mean, does McDonald see that? Yes. <laughs> um, I mean, McDonald is never um, as systematic and clear as we might want him to be. Um, uh, so um, I would say that he's definitely like he there's parts in this in this essay in particular. And, you know, whenever he talks about the imagination, he sounds like Coleridge. And yet I think there's wow. parts when he actually disagrees with Coleridge um, and we can get into some of those specifics. So, so yes, he, 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 when he talks about the imagination, he means the largest possible sense. He means the thing that's closest to the actions of God at creation. That's, mm -hmm. that's how he defines it. And in that sense, it's, it's close to Coleridge's primary imagination and some of those, um, some of those others. But I think McDonald is, is wary of, 
of taking that too far the the divine the, you know the I forget the exact phrase but the repetition of the divine i am is coleridge's version of this right mcdonald is always in, in in this essay which we're going to talk about he he very much takes a step back from that and says he's essentially hesitant to uh to use the word maker or creator uh or creative for the imagination he prefers um he prefers kind of a a, a slightly diminished sense of that, uh, partially because he's preserving, I guess, the the sovereignty and the uh, and the action of God in in some sense. But I think the other the other function of that is, as um, he, I always see Macdonald as is, is not is not taking it quite as seriously as Coleridge does. In a sense, there's, there's a sense it's like he's he he doesn't want us to worship even the imagination. It's right. So even though the imagination is, in some sense, the highest function, he still wants us to, you know, not therefore make it because because again, uh, this is this would be my reading. There are other people like um, who would who would very much say he's just imitating Coleridge here, um, but I would say he is he is undercutting a little bit the romantic, and you know, therefore going back uh, all the way to to the Greeks, elevation of the imagination as humans getting close to on par with the divine and and the poet as as um yeah sort of a semi-divine figure almost i think he's he's okay. wary of that <clears throat> this is this is fantastic okay this is the segue into into uh his essay the imagination its functions and culture because now we have this idea of whimsy we have this idea of the imagination we're bringing up uh, terms like the soul and rightly aligning. And then very early on in this essay, he says that the main function, uh, 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 that, that, that the imagination is aroused by facts um, and, um, and that it helps us conform the soul to reality. These things don't seem to go together. Kind of when we think about the terms of reality, the way it's deployed today, when we think of terms like facts, we might think of Neil deGrasse Tyson. What in the world for Coleridge? Uh, how does he put these things together? How does he start this way? Um, I mean, I think one way to think about that is, and again, I assume you meant McDonald, not Coleridge. Um, Oh yes, thank you. That, I did it again. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's okay. Um, that he, well, maybe maybe to back up a little bit, McDonald was was actually trained as a scientist. Um, he he went to Aberdeen University and he trained as a chemist and he and he, and he studied um, maths and physics and um, so and and he and he he was almost about he he wanted to become a doctor. He wanted to go to Germany and study chemistry and. Um, sort of be on the cutting edge of, of of that kind of thing, and and they couldn't afford it. His family couldn't afford to do that, so he didn't. Um, but he he and he but he continued to tutor uh, students in chemistry and physics and all sorts of things throughout his life. I mean, McDonald did so many things in addition to obviously all of his writing things. He 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 was himself an educator. It's part of the way he 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 made money. Um, and that kept his his family going when he didn't have a steady source of income. So there is for McDonald 
no ultimate separation between science um, and uh, the imagination. And in fact, he would say very much so that science, and, and this essay essentially does say that science does not work without the imagination. You cannot do science without the imagination. Um, and that uh, and that and that there's an interplay essentially, right? So one way of thinking again, we sort of already sort of tried to frame the imagination as the big picture. The the, the imagination, as he at one point in the essay, he talks about the imagination as the architect, um, and he talks about the intellect as the worker. And there's this sense in which the architect is getting is the one doing the plan, is getting the big picture, the big overview, and the and the 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 intellect, or you know, again, you could sort of fill in there the scientist is the one who's who's going in and. And doing kind of the the detailed work of actually building the thing or actually finding the the, the details and the facts and all of that kind of stuff. But you can't, you know, this we, we even in science you get this right. They talk about theory and theory is is seeing. Theory, theory is the idea of, of of a big vision. And McDonald would would say that without that, without the vision, without the overview, without the imagination, you cannot you can't do it. Um, and so there's this back and forth between the fact. Um, and the vision and the two are are mutually what informing each other correcting each other there's a there's a there's a dynamic um interplay between those two things for him i appreciate that you bring up the the science i i didn't even know that about george mcdonald but it makes sense now reading this he focused so much on science um I want, I want to say something to our teachers who are listening that one of the things that really struck me about reading this essay was that I think this essay could be an important bridge for the classical teacher um, who is teaching history, science, or math. Um, often those teachers sort of feel lost in the classical education training. And they're like, why are we reading poetry? We want help with how do I teach math classically? How do I teach science classically. And I think that this essay is probably one of the most important essays I've read that would encourage the science, the history, and the math teacher, because he, he talks directly about the imagination and its function within history, its function within science, its function within math, which is also why at the beginning of the podcast, I, I mentioned a, math, a mathematician's lament by Paul Lockhart, because the message in that book uh, is supported, I think, by this essay. Um, so, yeah, let's let's dive into the essay. And, and Rena, would you like to sort of walk our listeners through what the structure of this essay is? Yeah, I'll give a, a, an attempt to do so, and then I'd love to kind of hear Danny's uh, uh, kind of summary of the essay, its importance uh, um, in Coleridge's own work and and its reception. But uh, George uh, McDonald, you said Coleridge Lord have again. Mercy. <laughs> this is this might be like a public kind of like medical emergency or something. This is That's so the, great. I love it. The third time. Please forgive me. Well, you're That's, making uh, the connections that are good. That's good. Yeah, you're, you're making good connections. <laughs> there may there may yet be a medical emergency involved with this. So we'll everyone stand by. Okay. McDonald's essay. Um and I I think what what is really uh, interesting is that it seems like the the bridge between uh, the function of the imagination uh, and its culture. Still not sure what that is, but uh, Danny's going to help us figure that out. Um, 
happens really late into the essay. He spends, McDonald spends a lot of time in this essay just developing what is this thing, the imagination. Um, and of course, he finally, after kind of summing it up in this incredible uh, uh, paragraph that, that we'll get to, uh, telling us about the end of imagination being harmony, whatever that means yet, he then gets us to the culture of the imagination uh, and the development of which, uh, McDonald says, uh, one of its main ends is the divine education of life with all its efforts and experiences. I have no idea what that means, but it's beautiful, and I'm excited to hear what Danny has to say. Danny, well, tell us more about this essay, um, what it meant to McDonald. Um, and even how it was received, any information you might have on that, and then maybe some more details just about the, the richness of this before we kind of move through it a, a bit more to highlight some details. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just just to answer uh, one of those questions, which is maybe one of the easier ones to answer, uh, which also I think stumped me for a long time. Uh, so by its functions and its culture, we obviously tend to use culture to mean, um, you know, the the society or um, the group of individuals. He he literally means here its development, its um, its nurture. Um, so culture, in the sense of you know, like you know, I don't know, culturing um, bacteria or whatever. Right, right. It, 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 that's that's what he means by culture. Um, so that that yeah, it took me it took me ages to figure that out. <laughs> 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 but it, it would have made more sense to the Victorians, but it's just the way that we tend to use culture. We don't even think initially that that's what he means. And of course, that's where the word, our word, what we, where it originally comes from when we talk about culture. Um, anyway, um, so that was the easy one to answer. Um, in terms of its, um, let's see, in terms of its reception, uh, <clears throat> sadly, I don't think it, has had as big an influence as it should have. It was uh, he he um, he published it um, back in 1867, um, and I don't think it, it it again received the attention that it deserved. Uh, then he then collected it, and it became the first part of of this collection called A Dish of Orts, which A Dish of Orts is was not an it's not like a a logical. He, he didn't write a dish of orts as a book. A dish of orts is a, is basically a collection of things he published elsewhere. Uh, is is kind of what he means by a dish of orts. Orts are like scraps. Is, is literally what orts means. So a dish of orts means he's like collected all his scraps together and 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 put them. So you know, so it's also very self-deprecating when when these are some you know I would say some of his most brilliant things. Um, but he's he's putting them together um, as you know sort of something that he hopes is going to um, nurture people, you know, sort of feed us in some sense. Um, it, it clearly had an influence on the Inklings, uh, and, uh, you know, leading into Tolkien, you know, maybe, maybe you could comment more directly on that. Um, but I think there's a lot of, a lot of his ideas here, uh, were picked up probably most prominently by the Inklings, uh, Tolkien and Lewis and Barfield being most prominent, or at least the ones that most immediately come to mind. And, so, uh, yeah, it's, it would be an interesting to sort of see. I, I don't know if, um, again, I, I, my, my impression is that Tolkien is slightly, to go back to the, the distinction we were talking about with 
with Coleridge that that Tolkien is maybe slightly more on Coleridge's side than what I was describing as um, McDonald's a little bit greater hesitancy towards uh, elevating the imagination too high. But maybe I'll, I could let you comment on on your view of that. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and also uh, just so everyone knows, uh, Danny and I both are graduates of uh, the St. Andrews uh, Institute for Theology, Imagination, uh, and the Arts program, and we overlapped. I think like I think it was a year, maybe that we overlapped, or maybe a year and a half. Um, uh, yeah, so with, with Tolkien, like uh, um, like we don't have any records really of him having read this essay per se, and all the conversations are really about um, his fiction. Though, however. Um, readers of of uh, Tolkien's work, um, and those of you who pick up this essay um, and then pick up uh, Danny's book, uh, will definitely see that there are um, overlaps in language. So even the language of subcreator, right? I mean, there's there's something in there. But with that term subcreator, I think you're 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 intimating that um, it's more elevated than probably what McDonald is comfortable with, um, and certainly uh, uh, maybe um, as ennobled as uh, Coleridge uh, um, was hoping for. Though I do think that uh, um, philosophically and theologically, there's more. Uh, um, uh, um, there's more connectedness to this. There's something kind of theologically um, uh, ancient about uh, uh, what Coleridge is uh, talking about here. This aligning of the soul is a very classical language, and that seems a little, it's not sexy enough for um, a romantic like Coleridge uh, uh, um, to to maybe get into there. Um, uh, just again, just to clarify, your first Coleridge was McDonald, and your second Coleridge was Coleridge. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I don't know why this is happening. It feels um, like April Fool's here. <laughs> all oh, for your generosity. I uh, love this. Uh, and We're, grace. we should air this on April Fool's Day. <laughs> yeah. No, this is wonderful. I what love we'll it. do um, actually is just dub it. So. <laughs> Um, we'll have the the audio engineer just dub well, McDonald in there, and we'll just make it, it awkwardly it, obvious. <laughs> I think it's fine. I think this is great. It's fun. Um, whimsy. There's our whimsy. In there's there. our whimsy. So. Right. I love this. Um, oh, we are gonna have to. We are gonna have to uh, blooper this part out right here because I'm losing my train of thought. I, well, I, started, let's, I, I think we should <laughs> lean into the whimsy and levity. I mean, this is, I think, uh, uh, and there's not, this is the thing, right? That there's not, there's not en enough of this. And I think what's fascinating and, and maybe you can, um, save us, uh, in, in this moment, Danny, but, um, like, like there's some, there's that, that the whimsy is a part of the creative act. Like it, it, it both conforms to, or it's aroused by, by facts. Um, and there's a conforming of the soul to reality, but there's something about reality that is more than just the facts. It's more than just the things that we see. And so this kind of whimsy and levity allows us to kind of embrace it or even see it and touch it. I mean, what, what does that even look like? And, and how is that central to, to uh, this essay? Yeah, no, I think, I think 
uh, whimsy and, and, and fancy again, um, Coleridge talks about the difference between fancy and, and imagination. And there's a slight sense of, um, denigrating fancy as opposed to imagination. Right. Um, right. and McDonald does that a bit. And, and that, that does happen a little bit later on in this, in this essay. Uh, yet I think, I think what McDonald preserves a little bit more is the nobility of, of yes. the, the servant, I suppose. And there's a sense in which fancy, you, you don't get to imagination without fancy. And, and there's something you need the, um, the, just the little playful things before you can get to the, the grand, um, exotic, uh, masterful kind of level. So I think that's probably one of one of the things that that he would say, um, and and imagination just I, I guess couldn't be in a sense without fancy without without that and and yeah. and McDonald is always I would say focusing you know on the underdog or on the marginalized kind of figures within his within his within his fairy tales within his works and in that sense I think he also tends to do that philosophically and theologically. Um, he, he, this is, this is one of the reasons, like one of the big things, he actually doesn't do it too much in this essay, but elsewhere, one of his core ideas is the childlike and this idea of the childlike imagination, um, which is, uh, not just a romanticization, romanticization of the child, I'd, I, I would say, but is actually, um, it, it, it is somewhat it, it it's taking that idea of 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 the child seeming to be silly and seeming to be um naive or embarrassing or whatever happens to be and and showing that 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 is one of the primary ways in which god the conscience uh, uh, and these these other things function because it's one of the few ways that they that that god and and um god can kind of break through so to speak mm. um our human constructions and our human ways of presenting ourselves seriously like seriousness is one of the great um theological problems uh because it's taking yourself seriously and that is again mcdonald would say going back uh, you know he wouldn't he probably he wouldn't quote from augustine but it's kind of basically taking an augustinian view of of sin as as enclosed on the self as as the as the inward bent of the self uh, of the soul on itself and and that is the core idea of of sin and so um so one of the one of the, therefore one of the most important things you can do is to not take the self seriously um and you know, uh, Chesterton has, has the great line about angels can fly because they take themselves lightly, uh, and mm. and this is this is I think very much at, at 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 the core of Macdonald as well. It's taking the so much of human so much human sinfulness or uh, the problems of of development too, right? The problems of of learning. If we bring it back to 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 the learning side of things, is fear of being seen as silly or fear of shame or fear of embarrassment and we want to take ourselves seriously we want others to take us seriously and so we're so afraid of that that we kind of it's this closing in on the self and so what whimsy one of the things one of the other things that whimsy and um and um silly silliness can do is break out of that and 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 particularly um 
for for people who take themselves too seriously. It can be an, a moment when God can actually, or something beyond the self can break in. And I would think you're you're making me, as we're talking about whimsy, one of the fairy tales that to me feels the most whimsical that George MacDonald wrote is The Light Princess. It's it's very whimsical with with her floating around. And it's it's hilarious <laughs> when you're listening to the I listened to it on audio and I was laughing because it was hilarious <laughs> the way it was describing her floating around. I thought immediately I thought, oh, my four-year-old grandson would love to hear this story. Um, because he would get it probably better than us adults when we're listening to it, right? Because mm. he's already, he's in that realm of whimsy. Now, coming back to this essay, though, I felt that he was making a case for the imagination. I, I, I didn't. I personally didn't see the whimsiness of this. I saw that the imagination is to be taken very seriously in this essay. And I felt, and I, I would love to know, Danny, the audience to which he was trying to speak to, but I felt like he was, as Charlotte Mason did, when you read Charlotte Mason books, you feel like, oh, she's talking to us today because they were going through the same issues with too much testing and too much, you know, fact-based education. And she was sort of pushing back on that and saying, well, we need to get outside more. We need to develop our imagination more. And so I felt like he was kind of speaking to the same people she was speaking to who are so focused on this big push towards science that he was trying to say, you can't do science well without a well-ordered imagination. You can't do math well. You can't do history well. You can't understand any of these well unless... Your imagination is cultivated well. So I felt like this essay was an appeal to, to teachers, um, which is why I think teachers today ought to read it. Um, and, and I made so many notes where I saw connections to uh, some things in Boethius's Constellation of Philosophy. I saw connections to norms and nobility in here. I saw connections to Madeline Lingle. That's why I said any of those authors... I think that this essay is very dense, but if you're not in the mood to read Norms and Nobility, this would be a good essay to read because it's not anywhere near as long as Norms and Nobility, but I felt like it delivers a similar message. Absolutely. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, I I was just going to say that there, I, I agree with you um, that you always have to be careful because McDonald is never entirely silly and he's never entirely serious. like there's always you know, he, in one of his other fairy tales he, he says uh, when i jest i always jest in earnest and there's a sense in which um he he's there's always this tension between between the two it's because if you go too far down the jesting side and the silly side it it does it it, it obviously degenerates in some sense into um sort of pointless chaos um and if you go too far down the serious side it it calcifies into some um you know immovable rock kind of kind of situation um and so i will i will before before coming back to your other your other point i will just note he's 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 more on the silly frivolous side in his other essay which concludes uh, dish of war it's the fantastic imagination yes. that's 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 the essay that he's probably if 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 the readers were interested in in that angle he's more clearly doing that in um the fantastic imagination which is a brilliant essay and it's you know if Love if it. uh 
if uh, if if they didn't if your if your listeners didn't want to read this one, which is a much more difficult essay, the fantastic imagination is kind of uh, the light, playful version, yes. which is still introducing a lot of the same um, ideas uh, in a more in, a, in in an easier to digest, playful I, kind of way. I agree. I agree, Danny, and I think the fantastic imagination is another important essay for teachers. Like you said, if, if they don't want something quite as dense, it's much easier to read. And if you print it, it's only a few pages. Um, in the fantastic imagination, I think teachers can learn a lot about how to properly approach a fairy tale, how mm. to approach it in the classroom, approaching mm. it like it's a sonata. You know, you're going to hear different things in it. And I, I, I really love that. Um, speaking of, I love that you said he jests in earnest that he, he and and I picked that up in uh, the wise woman at the very beginning. He opens up the wise woman saying, "This is a rather you know unusual country." And then he goes to describe it. And I'm like, "Well, it's just like our country." <laughs> and I felt like that that's a good example of him jesting in earnest. If you just open mm. the the first paragraph of the wise woman is is funny, <laughs> mm. uh, but yet serious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, um, yeah. Describing this country and then how uh, the first thing that uh the baby did was to cry and isn't that right. surprising you know so there's there's this sort of um <laughs> yeah. you know uh you know he's he's just sort of describing our world um absolutely i think uh to go back to what you were saying about um it's it, it's importance for for teachers um well maybe 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 to take in a in a particular direction uh I think one of the things that it really talks, it really opens up, or really sort of for me, points to, is the importance of of reading, and the importance of space in education. Um, so McDonald is always, it, he's always imagining space. So a lot of his stories are doing this. Um, so in, in at the end of um, the history of Photogen and Nycteris, uh, for instance, the the story that story ends. Well, the story begins maybe with 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 the female character in a cave, and she gets out of the cave, and it's a sense of she was enclosed in this tiny dark space. And again, I think it's very much a metaphor for for some some um, people developing and growing and and getting out. And she gets out into the nighttime, and she's just amazed by the moon, and she thinks the moon is the sun, and all these kinds of things that are going on. Anyway, but the story ends with her sort of with her saying, um, maybe. We too, once once the the day boy and the night girl have married, it ends with it with with her saying, maybe one day we too will will get out of this world into into greater space. And, there, and McDonald had this constant sense of of space, and the imagination is providing more and more space for our our soul, for our mind, in some sense. And I think that's one place for thinking through this carefully as as teachers and educators is providing enough enough imaginative space for for students for children for adults to um to grow to sort of exercise their own imagination right it's not sort of just a a, a rigid memorize this kind of thing but creating those 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 places and those spaces for individuals to um, interpret things for themselves. And that's, you know, uh, that might be an area, uh, again, I think this is where some people are are often afraid, is, is giving students too much room to interpret. <laughs> uh, McDonald would, would very much encourage 
um, teachers to give students room space to interpret things for themselves. Um, not to say that he wouldn't correct it when it goes wrong and, and that, but he would be less fearful of a misinterpret. He is very, he is, he, is, he is surprisingly nonchalant about people misreading his stories. He's amazingly sort of like, well, maybe your misreading is better than what I meant. Um, yes. and, and and there's so few authors that I've ever read who say that. It's just like authors are just usually want to just sort of come down and say, no, that's not what I meant. Um, McDonald does the exact opposite and says, you know, he's very humble in that sense as an author. He's very much like he trusts the the reader. He trusts the reader and he trusts that God is somehow operating within their reading to to bring them to what they need right then. And and he just sort of sees his role as again, this is this is going back to the the um sub creator um you know uh, discussion. He sees himself in, in this essay, he talks about not the poet, the maker, but the the finder, um, the true there. And it's that sort of idea. It's it's a it's a slightly more humble kind of role. It's a slightly more open kind of position. Uh which allows greater, I'd say, greater space, greater opportunity, greater a greater role to the reader, and the author is less significant, um, and therefore, and therefore, the reader has greater responsibility and has to do greater work, which is what then enables greater development, greater ed greater education. Yes, I. I'm excited that you said this, Danny, and you brought this up. This is why I made the connection with Walking on Water by Madeline Lingle, because she says a similar thing about that often the work, the art that the author has provided is going to do a work in the heart of the, in the soul of the, the reader that the author didn't even realize was there. And George McDonald said the same thing in this essay, and I wrote it here in my notes for teachers. This is why we ought not ask what is the author's purpose? That really stupid state requirement test, test question, oh. what's the author's purpose? Um, I remember a lady, a poet, a modern poet, uh, her poem was in the Texas state test a few years ago. And the question was, what's the author's purpose? And she read it, she goes, I don't even know how to answer this question. And I wrote the poem. <laughs> you know, so, so, to say, and none of the answers even matched what she would have answered. But yeah, George McDonald, I have this. He he basically is saying that um, that there's there's that as a re, as as an author relying on words being living, that they're living. He brings that up in Fantastic Imagination. <clears throat> that they're going to do a work that is beyond what the artist may have intended. And I, I really appreciate that you brought that up, Danny, because I think that's really important for teaching, for good teaching. Oh, I wanted to, if, if, I, if I can, just kind of expand the conversation mm -hmm. a, a, a little more, because, you know, in this day and age, uh, the, 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 the key buzzword, I mean, there's two of them. One is curiosity when it comes to sciences, which is in the medieval world, um, a sin, um, and uh, creativity. Right? And so... It's very easy for someone to take to take this um, and feel really good about it and be like, hey, we need to foster creativity in our classes. We want our students to be creative. Um, but there's this very specific anthropology at work in what McDonald is putting forward here. Almost the anthropology that fits perfectly with Charlotte Mason's 
uh, uh, pedagogy, uh, we, we might say. And I'm wondering, there's two things that I'm wondering. So he says, McDonald says, uh, to come now to the culture of the imagination, the development of it, as you pointed out, its development is one of the main ends of the divine education of life with all its efforts and experiences. Okay, so there's something more than just the creative and the fun and the personal. There's kind of an expansion of the possibilities of what reality is composed with. I'm wondering, Danny, um, you know, McDonald uh, was a Scott Presbyterian, right? Um, it, does he interchange the use of imagination with uh, the sacramental? Is there a yearning for a, a, a kind of a sacramental, being able to kind of touch and see the movement of God or the gods coming and going like the ancient Greeks had, uh, um, being able to hear them in the rustling of the leaves. Um, what does that look like, Danny? How, how does it go beyond the mere creative? And is there a kind of sacramental aspect to this as well? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, always de depending on how we define sacramental, but yes, right. um, in the, in the, in the, largest sense what he means by an imagination is um that which well he defines one of its one of its primary function as searching and knowing the things of god so mm. um so yes he he would not just sort of have this vague sense of creativity as um completely untethered from a larger philosophical theological um framework and for him it is very much it's very much connected with the image of god um that uh, it's, it's you know it goes back to genesis and that kind of thing uh how humans are connected to god and it's one of the it, it's one of the primary ways in which we see um, the spirit of God's creation. And mm -hmm. so when he looks at a flower, this is, you know, it's kind of, uh, there's a, there is a definitely a romantic element to it. He's not, he's not sort of like Wordsworth. He would sort of complain about um, murdering when we dissect things. Um, and he would always want to, in seeing that flower, try to try to see what God meant by that flower. Um, and so it wouldn't just be a catalog of what what I can literally observe or the colors or or the texture or whatever it happens to be. Um, and he speaks specifically about <clears throat> um, the imagination um, within as as connecting us with the 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 divine at the seat of of our soul let me see if i can find the actual passage um that's this idea that oh yeah god's god sits in the chamber of our being in which the in which the candle of our consciousness goes out in darkness and sends forth thence wonderful gifts into the light of that understanding which is his candle and there's a sense in which what you do one of the things that he's conceiving is that 
the truest, the highest form of the imagination is that which opens itself out, again, in this sort of image of greater and greater space. But in that, you're also opening yourself out to the divine. Um, and you you find kind of, and again, the imagery is always kind of slightly paradoxical, but um, within your yourself, as you find greater and greater sort of space and move outwards in, in one sense, but also inwards, um, you find there and you are able to receive these um, communications through nature, through material things through art as well through all of all of that all of those are ultimately for mcdonald everything for mcdonald are messages from god everything so yes he's um to to connect to your he he was raised in a in a very presbyterian background the extent to which he remained presbyterian is is somewhat debated he obviously um he broke with certain aspects of 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 that, but he remained within other aspects of it. And um, but yes, there is there's there's clearly that sense of God is in everything, um, and is in, not only in all in, not only is in all nature. And this is another I think important point. He's in he's in everything. Um, he's he's in um, even the bad works of literature, for instance. God can use that. There's there's all sorts of stories. He he has he has one um, story in which uh, a little girl is is reading some terrible piece of literature, um, and she gets she gets the wrong end of the stick basically, um, but it's still something that prompts her to do good and to um, and, and to be kind to another to another person. So God can even ah. use terrible works of literature, which maybe is a, is not quite Charlotte Mason's um, point, but. Um, <laughs> For for McDonald, it's all God's message. Right. There, there's it's not just the pretty flower, um, and and McDonald has so much about ugliness in his stories and how ugliness is not necessarily ugly, uh, you know. So in the princess and the in the goblin, this is probably the easiest, or the princess and Curdie in particular. You get you get these the uh, the uh, they're called the uglies these these monsters monstrous creatures who are actually. Um, some of the best, uh, most moral creatures in the story. And it's the humans who look good, who are actually turning into snakes and beasts of all, of all sorts and descriptions. So ugliness is not necessarily uh, exclusive to being able to be a message from God. So God can use anything is kind of one of, one of McDonald's messages. It reminds me of, uh, uh, Tolkien in the Silmarillion that the the uh, the discord is sown into the harmony um, that that it's not nothing can stand outside of uh, that that reality. Mm. Well, that that's wonderful. What fun, um, Adrian? Do you have uh, any? Uh, well, it's hard because I have the essay in front of me and I have so many annotations. <laughs> Oh yeah, it's 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 hard to it's hard to talk about the essay because there's so much. It's so incredibly dense. I have the word forms a lot, and I I did notice that uh, this was my third reading of this. And I'll I'll say this to our listeners: um, I've read Abolition of Man three times, and now I've read this essay three times, and I feel that they both have equal importance. This one's never talked about. Abolition of man is always talked about. Um, but I feel that, that they both have a similar denseness to them, if you will. 
And um, I still don't fully understand it, just like I don't fully understand Abolition of Man. But I walked away from this reading feeling like for the first time I may have begun to understand what forms means. I've struggled with forms for a long time. And Reno, you and I have talked about, about this. And uh, I, f I think one of the reasons why I started to understand what forms was as I read this essay was that I was able to connect this essay to a lot of his stories, to his fairy tales. And I could actually see in my mind and feel in my emotions what he was trying to say through this essay because I've experienced his stories. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I, I think that he does in his stories what he's talking about in this essay. Would that be right, Danny? Yeah, no, absolutely. He's, his, I mean, and again, if, if, if you were, if you were asking um, a more general uh, reader where to start, I would, I wouldn't point them to this essay. No. Um, yeah. So I would, I would very much probably uh, either the fantastic imagination if they yes. want, if they were more on the essay side, but to be, to be perfectly honest, it's much better to come to even the fantastic imagination having read his stories. And so I would always point people to the fairy tales, first of all. I mean, of course, that's what I personally um, love and have worked the most on. But I also think they are, there's something so, the, the reason why McDonald's fairy tales are so amazing, I mean, there's so many reasons, but one is because he loved fairy tales so much. And MacDonald wrote so many things. He, you know, is one of the most prolific writers of the Victorian period. He wrote um, uh, t two volumes of poetry, you know, like a thousand pages worth of poetry. And he wrote, you know, I can't, I can't even remember 20 some novels of, that are massive Victorian length kind of things and five works of s sermons or theology. And you know, like it's, it, the list goes on and on and on. But, and it's not to say that he doesn't, sort of value those and put a lot into those but he he has a deep passion for fairy tales and it's like it's like all the best in my mind comes out of mcdonald when he writes mm -hmm. fairy tales and, and it, it, it crystallizes so many of his thoughts he he's he, he literally like it's when his imagination is at its richest and it's at its most powerful and vivid and concise um and at its least preachy, so to speak. You know, McDonald was a preacher in, in many ways, or he continued preaching throughout his life. And in some of his novels, he he kind of can get very um, preachy in, at, at moments. But his fairy tales, he just, because it's it's like the imagine his imagination has risen to that highest level, I would say. And so I would I would highly recommend that that, that if if no one's familiar with with the fairy tales, they they start there. Um, I, I agree, Danny. I, I have the audiobook called Fairy Tales by George MacDonald, published by Naxos. And it is just fantastic and has, the, the two readers are amazing. And I have stumbled into this deep love for the fairy tale called The Carousel. And I feel like that might be one of the easiest fairy tales to start with. So if we have a listener wanting to know where to start, uh, mm. the audio book is a fantastic place to start uh, if you do a lot of driving back and forth to school or picking up kids from school um, and, and the children will love it and, and and I've as I've listened to these fairy tales I've gotten this sense that surely he was writing these for his children because they're they're so fantastically fun that I'm sure he was writing these for his children 
Do you do you even know? Well, the, the only know? yeah the the only evidence that we have is um, well, there's a couple there's a couple things. He 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 likely wrote the shadows for a well the 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 original version of the shadows was written as a Christmas family publication so everyone in his family wrote something for christmas and so so we know that he wrote that for this christmas sort of publication the in in um in um the the first time he collects the fairy tales by themselves most of his fairy tales are published in other things so um he he has he has a novel called adela cathcart in which he publishes some of these as their stories they're sort of um inter interpolated stories into the the larger narrative but when he publishes them by themselves he has a has a preface in which he says you know that unlike other papas i do not tell you stories <laughs> so there's it's, it's a it's a very strange thing for him to say he basically says i i've never read these two before <laughs> um uh and whether or not he whether or not that's true is you know is is hard to say is he again how playful is he being with that preface to his to right. his children um, but I, I, what I would say is, I, I think he, it's almost like he wrote these because they were so important to him. Um, and it's not to say that I don't think they weren't important to, to other, to other children as well, but unlike somebody like Lewis Carroll, who, who clearly, you know, the Alice stories started as telling them to another, to a, to a child, to entertain a child. I think that's less clear with McDonald. Um, and well, and McDonald was friends with, with, with Lewis Carroll. And that yeah, no. Alice in Wonderland came out of that. And I know that the first manuscript that Lewis Carroll wrote, he gave to George MacDonald's wife, said, please read this to your children. And then George MacDonald gave him many notes back and said, you need to expand the story, right? But yeah, I think yeah. it's it's brilliant. And I see in the story cross purposes, it feels a mm. lot like Alice in Wonderland to me. Mm. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Um, cross purposes predates Alice in Wonderland, as does The White Princess and quite a few of, of McDonald's stories. Um, but yes, they, we don't know if this is actually true, but, uh, you know, according to Greville McDonald, uh, George McDonald's son, the, one of the first readings of the stories was to the McDonald family. And it was Greville McDonald who said something like, there should be a thousand books just like this one. And, you know, and, and high praise from the McDonald family helped encourage uh, the publication, well, you know, probably he would have published it anyway. But there, there, there certainly was a, a strong family connection. Uh, Lewis Carroll was, who was into photography, also photographed the yes. McDonald family and children on numerous occasions. Um, they, they, there's lots of times where they, they, there's letters between them, and so they had, they had a really strong um, relationship. And, and I think, you know, Fantasties predates uh, Alice in Wonderland, and there's a lot of, uh, I think, similar echoes and imagery that yes. that yes. that um carol is drawing upon from a lot of mcdonald's works so yeah reno do you have any more thoughts that you want to bring no. us back to the essay do you want to bring us back to the essay i know there's more thoughts in there too no no not at all i just i just wanted to uh um uh uh, I just came across this uh, quote uh, within the essay. MacDonald um, says, speaking of true learning, Lord Bacon says, it taketh away vain admiration of anything, which is the root of all weakness. Um, and I think uh, uh, just again, uh, this kind of just bringing us back to the essay and to uh, his kind of larger, larger project and the way that it intersects uh, with levity 
and the importance of the like understanding the way that the imagination functions as something that belies our undual the 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 uh, um, undeserved um, worship of the the mundane and the ordinary and the 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 merely the merely natural um, that there's a reason why we read these stories to our children um, we're helping them learn to see right we we need we need to learn to see um, and without it we are literally walking blind through the world um, and without it we're merely worshiping the things of creation uh, rather than seeing expanding that world um, and so this is i don't know this to me this is uh, has been wonderful and i hope that people uh, see the possibilities um, and are able to see the possibilities for their schools and for their curriculum um, and to imagine new ways that that their children can um, move and be and learn uh, in schools uh, beyond the, 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 the merely obedient uh, and the merely uh, 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 compliant. So there's some transgressive uh, for us <laughs> to add to the levity that I brought to uh, today's episode. Yeah. Um, well, I think one of the close to the end of the essay, and if you guys want to add to this, some, some parts that I guess a, a, a quote that I think is, would be important to say is right before he starts talking about the culture of the imagination, he says, the end of imagination is harmony, a right imagination being the reflex of the creation will fall in with the divine order of things as the highest form of its own operation. Um, and I, I felt that that was important to, to, towards the end of the essay to, to talk about what, what the end of the, the, the purpose and the end of imagination being harmony in, in a rightly ordered way of, of thinking and, 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 um, and I wonder if you follow. can put that whole par paragraph in the show notes. Because yeah, I should, I should, because I think, I think it's really important and, over and over through this essay, he really does talk about the divine order of things, and it, it kept mm. making me think mm. of uh, Augustine and um, the rightly ordered, everything being rightly ordered, um, our loves being rightly ordered, and I felt like this was very much tied to to that. Danny, do you have any mm. closing thoughts on the essay? Um, yes, maybe maybe to close, kind of on the the note the essay itself closes on, which is, which is not, uh, I, I think it's, I think it's making the same point that you were just making about, um, the harmony, the imagination connecting us to the, to this divine harmony. And yet at the same time, what it does is slightly undercut that language as McDonald always likes to do, because he talks about it as to be, he says, thus to be playfellows with God. So this language of, of harmony, um, is is wonderful, and I think it's true. And I'm not, and, I, and I don't think McDonald is, you know, he's not he's not really. But McDonald is always moving us on from fixating on one 
kind of idea and particularly a really high one that can make us feel very serious about things and and i love that i i you know i absolutely love that he ends on that thus to be playfellows with god in this game and he's talking about the the whole thing in that language of play and that language of game um <clears throat> i think restores the joy of it restores the joy of 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 education of 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 development itself um and he talks about us. He talks about everyone as the the children, the, the children of God, the child of the kingdom. They pour upon the lilies of the field and gather faith as the birds of the air. Their food from the leafless hawthorn, ruddy with the stores God has laid up for them. All right. So there's this there's this idea of all of it. Science is God's game for us, um, and math, and you know, all and history. It's all it's all sort of this 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 wonderful. Um, play that God has, has has created for us to delight and enjoy in um, in this world. Yes. Oh, very, it's very wonderful. well said. Were there any other uh, closing um, thoughts we wanted to share with our listeners in general? That was uh, that is a, a wonderful uh, ending. Um, the only thing yeah. that could be more funny is for me to say Coleridge one last time. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. That is funny. Um, Danny, I, we, I didn't prep you for this. I apologize. But uh, I usually like to end my podcast asking if there is a book you wish you had read earlier in your life or a quote that has had a lot of meaning to you. If you can think of anything, uh, I'd love for you to share that. I apologize for not uh, warning you ahead of time. <laughs> A book I had read earlier in life. Um, well, uh, McDonald would probably be on that list. I didn't really read McDonald until um, until university, so I, I didn't read any of McDonald's. You know, it's, it's slightly ironic that I that I spent so much time on his fairy tales when I didn't even read his fairy tales. I I, I found McDonald's fairy tales. I had a sort of a magic moment finding McDonald's fairy tales when I was at university. There was this. I went to um, a small liberal arts college, Roanoke College in Virginia, and there was this beautiful old bookstore that had. Um, you know, used books and kind of you know, this typical kind of piled up and uh, things falling over and all that kind of stuff. And I was wandering through with 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 a friend of mine, and I remember discovering um, McDonald's fairy tales. And I'd heard of McDonald through Lewis, like most people. Um, and suddenly, I, I didn't know he had written fairy tales. And there was this, you know, it, it felt like um, uh, to connect into something Reno has mentioned earlier, the Michael Enda uh, moment, never-ending story, uh, where he find he finds this book in a in a in a bookshop, and it transports him to another world. And that was kind of that was my discovery of McDonald's fairy tales. I didn't, you know, I, I wasn't able to hide out in the book sh bookshop and, uh, and read it, but, uh, but I did, that was, that was sort of the moment that I discovered it. So on one hand, I wish I had read it as a child. On the other hand, I I'm, I'm very happy with, with having that moment as well. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, <clears throat> what, tell us a little bit about your, your book where people could find it. And um, also, does the George McDonald Society have a website? And tell us, before we close, what kind of resources they offer. Yeah. Um, yeah, my book is uh, just called George McDonald, Divine Carelessness and Fairytale Levity. Uh, you can find it on Amazon or wherever you like to buy your books. Um, it... The George McDonald Society has a website. Am I going to remember what it is? Um, uh, it's, well, we'll if put you it just in the search, show. Yeah, yeah, we'll put it just, in the show notes. 
if you just search George McDonald Society, it'll come up. Um, it's it has it has a lot of resources. It has a lot of connections to his his works that are available online. Um, it has some background biograph biographical information. I'm hoping eventually, although this probably isn't immediate, to to put some stuff for for teaching, to put some teaching resources oh, yeah. up on there. Um, to again, I think that's one of the most important ways of promoting uh, McDonald would would be to get a get them out to teachers a little bit more. So I'd like to do that um, in in the future, and. There's also links to where again. We're, have you heard of Malcolm Geit? Um, he's yes. Um, yes. he's the president of the McDonald Society, ah. and he um, he's done various. Um, he does spells in the library. I don't know if you've ever seen his his YouTube. Yes. So it's yes. Links to that, and there's a few events that it links to that we've done online that we've posted on YouTube and that kind of stuff. Oh, this is great. Well, Danny, thank you so much for this uh, conversation and for Reno, for you helping to co-host us. Thank you for inviting me. Through this, it was lovely. And uh, I really appreciate your time. And I'm sure this episode is going to be a joy and a blessing to many. Thank you. Great. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Danny. Yes. Good to see you, Reno. You too. Thank you for listening. You can get involved in a few ways. There's a Facebook page where we actively discuss the ideas around classical education. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. And if you want to help offset our production costs, you can support the podcast financially by going to www.classicaleducationpodcast.com forward slash support. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once said, well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be in a few words this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know best of all what it is to behave under it as in the presence of a father who is in heaven.